Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at the first verse. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near, and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. That's Titus, chapter 2, starting from verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Father, we thank you that you are our helper, and that you are an almighty one. 
And we pray that you'd help us now as we come to your word to listen with open hearts. And we pray that you'd help us to do in our lives the things that you command us to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly this time last week, I was standing in the kitchen in a school on a Christian summer camp, helping a group of students to wash up. And as we were waiting for the dishwasher to finish one of its rather long cycles, uh, one of the students turned to the group and asked this question, which three words would you most want to overhear someone else describing you with? Isn't that a great question? Which three words would you most want to hear someone else describing you with? I wonder how you'd answer. Funny? Attractive? Clever? Caring? Hardworking? Successful? What do you most want other people to think of you in three words? If I might make a suggestion from our passage this evening commends the gospel, adorns the truth, or even this, makes Christianity beautiful. Because if we understand what God is saying to us in this passage, then we will leave today praying that other people might say something like that about us. Now, we've said already in this series that Titus is Paul's mission strategy for Crete, And rather like much of Europe views the UK today, Cretans in antiquity were seen by their continental neighbours as a little bit unrefined at best and downright untrustworthy at worst. Cretans were the fans keeping the bars open whenever the gladiatorial games came into town. Cretans were the tourists on holiday whose binge drinking made the other holidaymakers blush. Uh, Cretans... Uh, were the ones with the leaders who were always first to break their own international agreements. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Also like the UK today, Crete was an island overrun by false teaching, and particularly by a kind of false teaching that said, we're happy to mimic the prevailing culture as long as you sprinkle a little bit of religion and ceremony on it a powerless purity that led to camouflage Christianity. And step one of Paul's strategy, well, that was two weeks ago, in chapter 1, 5 to 9, to appoint godly men who will teach the truth and exemplify it in their lives. Step two is today. And at the heart of it is you, ordinary Christians, but living lives transformed by the gospel that make God's truth look glorious. The heart of God's strategy to win your family, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, is you. And what your life says about his gospel. What do you want others to think of you in three words? Commends the gospel adorns the truth, makes Christianity beautiful. Now, before we unpack what that looks like, we just need to remind ourselves of a key gospel truth, and this is really important. We cannot live lives that adorn the gospel 
unless we are being transformed by the gospel. Let me say that again. You cannot live a life that adorns the gospel unless you are being transformed by the gospel. Now, usually Paul would remind us of that by starting with the gospel and then unpacking the implications. So you might be familiar with the book of Ephesians, where Paul spends three chapters explaining the gospel, and then he explains in chapters four to six the implications for our lives. In Titus, it's the other way around. Paul starts in chapter two, one to 10, with the pattern of a godly life. And then in verse 11, there's a climactic four where he then begins to explain how the gospel functions to empower that godly life. And this week, we're only going to look at the pattern in verses 1 to 10. We're not going to get to the gospel power source in verses 11 to 15 until next week. The advantage of that is we get to spend a whole week next week thinking about the gospel power source. The danger is that we leave this evening either very proudly thinking we can do this in our own strength are all very burdened, thinking we have to do this in our own strength, but we know we can't. And so to avoid either of those outcomes, I just want you to write in big capital letters at the top of your handout, if you're taking notes, like the the warnings that you get on packaging, do not use without Titus 2, 11 to 15. And then make sure you come back next week. Because you cannot live the transformed life in 2, 1 to 10 unless you're being transformed by the gospel of 2, 11 to 15. Now, with that said, we can turn to unpack the pattern of life described in verses 1 to 10. And we're going to see three things. The mandate to teach the truth that transforms. The manner of households transformed by the truth. And the motivation to live lives that adorn the truth. So first, the mandate teach the truth that transforms. The whole of Titus 2 is bookended by commands to teach. So look down with me at verse 1 in the passage. Titus 2 verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then look just over the page at chapter 2 verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you. Those two commands function like bookends around the whole chapter. All of the commands are singular, which means they're given to Titus then and specifically to church leaders today. And all of them are present tense. That means they could be translated, go on teaching, go on exhorting, go on rebuking, go on declaring. So Paul wants Titus to keep teaching what he's teaching. And what does he want him to keep teaching? Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now that primarily means the gospel. I remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, it's the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. But it also means the gospel's implications for our lives, which is why Paul can say in verse 15, of chapter 2, declare these things, that is the whole of 2, 1 to 15, both the the pattern of a godly life in verses 1 to 10 and its gospel power source in verses 11 to 15. That's what Titus is to go on teaching. 
And by teaching that, he's to distinguish himself from false teachers. Note the emphatic contrast in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Whereas they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, 1 verse 11, you, Titus, are to teach what is sound, literally what is healthy. It's actually the same word that's used in the Gospels a lot for uh, when Jesus heals a sick person and they're restored to health. So while false doctrine is like a disease, Paul actually calls it gangrene in 2 Timothy 3. Titus is to teach what is healthy, what is sound, what is true. And by bookending the whole of Titus 2 with this mandate to teach, Paul is saying that everything else in the passage, everything else that we're going to say this afternoon, depends on this teaching. You cannot live a healthy life if you're not receiving healthy teaching. Your spiritual health depends on your spiritual diet. Or as Nick said a few weeks ago, your godliness is in the hands of your Bible teachers. Some of you might be familiar with the film, Supersize Me. Uh, If you're not, it's basically, it's a sort of documentary uh, where this American man goes around trying to find out how your body will cope if you eat nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. And the answer, sort of somewhat unsurprisingly, I'm not really sure if you need a documentary to establish this, is not very well. Uh, You feel really depressed Your cholesterol goes through the roof. By the end of the month, you can barely walk up a flight of stairs. And if you do make it to the top, you're much more likely to have a heart attack when you get there. Of course. Of course you are. Because your body won't be healthy unless you eat a healthy diet. And your spiritual life won't be healthy. Your life won't be healthy. Your godliness won't be healthy unless you listen to healthy teaching. So if you're here this evening, this afternoon, and you're, church lead, you're a church leader, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And if you're not a church leader, which I guess is most of us, then make sure you get this kind of teaching in your diet. At this time of year, lots of us will be leaving London and moving to other places. If that's you, have you thought about, have you made it your top priority? Wherever you're going, wherever you're moving to, to get to a church where this kind of teaching is common. Others of us will be going away from London for holidays, away from our normal routines. Have you worked out yet how you're going to keep feeding yourself with this kind of teaching when you're on holiday? Others of us will be arriving in London for the very first time. If you're one of those people, we're so glad you're here, and we hope that you'll make St. Helens your home. But as you look around different churches in London, is sound teaching the first thing that you look for? Have you committed to be at a church with sound teaching every Sunday? Have you signed up to join a small group in September? Because your spiritual health depends on it. You won't be able to live a healthy life without healthy teaching. But what does a healthy life look like? What kind of life accords with sound doctrine? For that, we need our second point. So secondly, the manner of households transformed by the truth. Verses 2 to 10 of our passage contain a kind of portrait of a transformed Christian household. 
Back in chapter 1, verse 7, we saw that the church is God's household, his family. And that's why Paul calls elders God's stewards, God's household managers. And we also saw in chapter 1, verse 11, in the last passage, that the false teachers were upsetting whole families with their teaching. The household was the focus of their campaign. And so for both these reasons, Paul directs his instructions in our passage to different household groups. In verse 2, to older men, which in the ancient context would have been around 60 or over. In verse 3, to older women. In verses 4 and 5, to younger women. In verses 6 to 8, to younger men, including Titus. And then in verses 9 and 10, to slaves. Each of these sections addresses the particular temptations of that group. But there is a common theme. I wonder if you noticed it as we read through the passage. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Or verse 3, halfway through the verse, on page 1201, right at the top of the page on the left, they are to teach, that is the older women, what is good, and so train, literally, and so self-control the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Over and over and over again in this passage, Paul stresses self-control. The ability to decide which desires to act on and which not to. Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary, called it the discipline to say yes to what God approves and no to what God forbids. And more than once in this passage, Paul says that is the defining mark of a transformed Christian life. Of course, what that looks like in reality will differ for each group, depending on their particular temptations. So let's look at a bit more detail at what Paul says to the different members of God's household. Firstly, to the older men in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So for older men, self-control is summed up as dignity in conduct, sober-minded, dignified, and soundness in doctrine, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. I think maybe Paul was thinking of the temptation. I know this is a bit cheeky to say as a 26-year-old, but I think... I think Paul was thinking of the temptation that maybe sometimes comes with age just to become a little bit spiritually lazy. I think of Solomon in the Old Testament who went well with God for so long and then drifted at the end. And maybe you know someone for whom that's the case. And Paul says, don't let that be your story. If you're an older man, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to keep your conduct dignified and your doctrine healthy with a maturity that befits your age and a gospel that's in line with the scriptures. Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Secondly, to the older women in verse 3. 
older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. I guess the temptation for older women in Paul's day would have been all about their use of time. Most of them would have been at home all day without jobs to go to. What were they going to do with all those spare hours? Well, I guess they could have the girls round for a big glass of wine and a side dish of steaming gossip. And once again, Paul says, no, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to be reverent in behavior. As someone whom God has brought into his holy priesthood, using your time not for drinking and gossiping, but to teach the young women how to live for Jesus. It's worth noting here that Paul gives that teaching role to older women. And so even though he restricts the eldership to men in, in chapter 1, 5 to 9, he does not think that women have no Bible teaching ministry in the church. Quite the contrary. If you are an older woman, part of the way that you demonstrate your transformation by the gospel is by using your spare time to train the younger women in your RML group. And what are you meant to train them in? Well, let's keep reading from the middle of verse 3. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. I think it's important at this, bit, this point to be clear about a few things that Paul is not saying. First, when he assumes in verse 4 that young women will be married with children, that they have children and a husband to love, he's not ruling out either singleness or childlessness as completely valid ways to be godly. That is really important. Remember, Paul himself was single and childless, and so were many of his female co-workers in the gospel. He's simply addressing here what would have been the cultural norm in his day. And the normal struggle for women in Paul's day, as I guess it is for many people here today, would have been when their husband comes home late for the second night in a row, or their children are screaming at midnight once again. Will they have the self-control to fight those feelings of resentment and actually to serve with love? Maybe some of you recognize that battle. Second, when Paul says that young women are to be working at home in verse 5, he's not making a comment on your company's working from home policy, uh, nor is he saying that women should be at home and not in the workplace. Uh, remember, Titus was written at a time when all women would have been at home, and the only question was, would they be busy at home or would they be idle at home? And Paul is saying, be busy at home. I demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to use that time productively to serve other people rather than to catch up on Netflix. His point is that women should be useful rather than idle, serving others rather than serving themselves, not at home rather than in the office. Third, 
uh, it's really important just to say that when Paul encourages young women to be submissive to their own husbands, he's absolutely not giving any justification for any kind of abusive behavior. And I would really encourage anyone who is experiencing any kind of abuse to speak to someone in the church family about that. The Bible teaches that husbands should lead their families in obedience to God, that that's a wonderful thing, and that their wives should encourage them to do it. But that male leadership should be as gentle and as kind and as self-sacrificial as Jesus. It should look like Christ and his cross. And so there's no room for any kind of abuse But even where that kind of Christ-like leadership is present, it still takes a lot of self-control to let your husband take the lead. And so Paul says, demonstrate your transformation by submitting to your husband, even when you can see that your way of doing things would be better. Again, maybe that's a struggle that some of you recognize. That's what self-control looks like for young women. What about young men? For us, Paul's instructions are much shorter. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Everyone else has some specific area that they need to work on. But younger men just get a general command. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Full stop. That might be because Paul thought we needed to work on self-control in every area. And if he did, then he certainly wouldn't be alone in that that opinion. I think J.C. Ryle, it was, who wrote a whole book called Thoughts for Young Men that is basically devoted to the premise that young men are the most spiritually infuriating group of people. At this point, all the women are nodding. It might be because, actually, we can work out what the big temptations are for young men without Paul spelling them out for us. We live in a society where a third of men use porn at least once a week. The average household debt is £83,000. The average person spends two hours a day creating their image on social media. So where will self-control make the biggest difference for young men? To resist sexual activity, whether in person or online, except between one man and one woman in marriage? to keep our spending within our own means and not to go beyond what we can afford, to care more about others than about ourselves and to put them before the way that we look. I know there will be people here for whom one of those is a real struggle at the moment. And so if that's you, please just remember what we said at the beginning. None of us does this perfectly, least of all me that we're saved by the gospel of grace that Paul is about to go on to explain and that the strength to make any progress on these things has to come from that gospel. It's also worth saying, please come and talk to someone and maybe use the time in Food for Fives earlier. We'd love to pray with you and help you. And please come back next week to think about how it's God's grace that empowers that transformation in our lives. Just to throw it out there, I think there's also another reason why Paul doesn't give much detail in verse 6. And it's because of what he says to Titus in verses 7 and 8. So look down there with me, verse 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Uh, It's not super clear in the ESV, but verses 7 and 8 are actually grammatically dependent on verse 6. So the way that Titus is to urge the younger men to be self-controlled is partly by setting them an example himself, both in his life as a model of good works and in his doctrine by showing integrity and soundness of speech in his teaching. So if you're a young man like me and you want to live a life marked by that kind of self-control, have you thought about looking at your church leaders? Because their life and their teaching should be a model to you of what that looks like, just as Titus was for the young men on Crete. Finally, verses 9 and 10, slaves. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Stereotypically, slaves in the ancient world were seen as as lazy, as feckless, as insubordinate. They were often portrayed as prone to disobey and liable to nick your stuff if given half the chance. And Paul doesn't affirm that stereotype, nor, it's worth saying, does he affirm uh, slavery in general. People do sometimes make that accusation. Uh, Actually, it was Paul's teaching that partly inspired men like William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in the British Empire. But Paul does deal with reality as he finds it. There would have been slaves on Crete. And to them, Paul says, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to prove people wrong, to be trustworthy with money, to be obedient to instructions. Of course, we don't have the same system of slavery today, but many of us will work in places where those things are a real struggle. Perhaps it's the temptation to lie about how good our product really is. Uh, Perhaps it's the temptation not to love that person in the office who bosses us around and makes life a misery. But through the gospel, we're able to say no to the temptation to lie or to cheat or to gossip. And yes, to a life of quiet, loving, obedient, self-control. So that's the portrait of a transformed Christian household. Different temptations for every group, but the same principle all the way throughout. Gospel transformation lived out in self-controlled lives. It's so different to the false teacher's message, isn't it? Their message is one of external religion and ceremony, but internal, on the inside, just total conformity to the world. And Paul's message is one of real change, of older men who are dignified instead of drifting, of younger women who are serving instead of slacking, of young men who control their bodies instead of giving in to pleasure. I mentioned at the beginning that I was on camp last week. And while I was there, one of the campers actually said, everything in life 
over-promises and under-delivers, but camp always delivers. Isn't that a lovely quote? I don't think he was just talking about the activities, though. I think he was talking about the godliness. He wouldn't have put it in those words. But he was talking about the fact that when he comes on camp, he knows what he's getting, that he'll be loved, that he'll be treated with respect, that the fun will be wholesome, that no one will be left out or made to feel talked about behind their back. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for someone to say about St. Helens? Everything in life over-promises and under-delivers, but when it comes to St. Helens, to the 4 p.m., to their godliness, to their self-control, they always deliver. And actually, if outsiders were to start saying things like that, we'd be achieving exactly what Paul wanted. Which brings us to our last point, the motivation to live transformed lives that adorn the truth. And we've already described the the portrait of a Christian household in verses 2 to 10. But we actually skipped over those three places where Paul says that or so that at the end of an instruction. Maybe you noticed it as we went through. So first, at the end of verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Or again, at the end of verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And again in verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Note how it's both positive and negative. And so negatively, Paul wants to defend the gospel against its opponents. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Don't give any excuse to that non-Christian family member for their hostility to the gospel in the way that you conduct yourself. Apparently, Gandhi once remarked on Christianity, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. That shouldn't be possible in a household like the one described in this passage. But Paul's purpose is also positive, verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the truth doesn't just accord with godliness in the sense that it produces godliness. It also accords with godliness in the sense that godliness adorns the truth and makes it look beautiful. Actually, that word adorn is the same word that's used in Revelation 21 and that passage that we often had read at weddings when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I still remember the day almost exactly five years ago now when my wife Hannah came through those doors and up this aisle adorned with her dress and her flowers And her radiant smile. And in the same way, by living out the instructions in verses 2 to 10, we are to adorn the gospel. 
Of course, those things didn't make Hannah beautiful. She already was. But they brought out the beauty for everyone to see. And our lives are to bring out the beauty of the gospel for all to see. It's a goal that the pattern given by Paul is perfectly suited to achieve, isn't it? I think even if you're here today and you're the most ardent skeptic against Christianity, you have to admit that the pattern in verses 1 to 10 is beautiful. And nobody actually wants to live in a world where people can't control themselves, do they? Where men are watching pornography every week, where women resent their husbands and are always trying to one-up them where employees can't be trusted with money. Nobody wants to live in that world. But we're powerless to do anything about it unless we have the gospel. But with the gospel, we have the power to live transformed lives that function as a living, walking, breathing billboard for God's truth. So what do you want other people to think of you I hope you want them to say self-controlled. I hope you want them to say adorns the gospel. I hope you want them to say makes Christianity beautiful. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for your non-Christian family to say after your hot summer holiday this year? Uh, Or the campers to say on a camp that you're serving on? Or your colleagues to notice as you slog away at your desk in the summer sun? It's actually how the student worker at my old church became a Christian. He wasn't particularly persuaded by any of the talks he attended. He wasn't really interested in reading a gospel one-to-one. Not that that's a bad thing to do. It's a great thing to do. But what particularly struck him was the way that his Christian roommate lived. The fact that he never joined in gossip. The fact that he treated girls with respect. The fact that he wasn't out on a Friday night getting wasted. And in the end, that's what won him over and made him turn to Christ. A life of self-control that made the gospel look glorious. Wouldn't it be amazing if the way that you conduct yourself this summer made its way into someone else's testimony like that? Let's pray that God would help us. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel that it has the power to transform our lives. We pray that in the strength of that grace, you would equip us to live out the pattern of life in this passage. And we pray that it would make your truth look glorious to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.